but he did not answer her a word. This is a telling story. The Lord Jesus has been uh, once again opposed in the land of the children of God, that should be the children of Israel. And they have challenged him, and they've uh, harried him and hectored him. And he departs from that region strategically and goes off to the north and west to the bad history areas of Tyre and Sidon, those uh, inveterate enemies of Israel. And there comes out to meet him a woman who Matthew gives a very sinister name. She's a Canaanite. As I mentioned, nobody's called a Canaanite uh, at that time currently, but Matthew uses that frequent Old Testament name to tell us that she's of the people who were also the enemies of Israel, who were to be driven out of the land. She's not of the chosen people. And she comes out and she cries out. She follows behind Jesus and the disciples and she shouts at the top of her lungs again and again. And she cries out, show me mercy, Lord, son of David, using that messianic title, for my daughter is badly demonized. And though all can hear her, Jesus responds not at all. He responds with silence. So the disciples fill the silence by uh, their own request. They ask him to get rid of her, send her away, do whatever it takes to get her from bothering them and yelling behind them. But in answer, he says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Not an encouraging word from her perspective because she's not of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So she takes that as her opening and she comes in front of him and she bows down to him and a second time calls him Lord and just says, help me. And he says, well, it's not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the little dogs. And there she sees her opening. She's not of the children of Israel, true. She's not of the children, true. Uh, But is she a little dog? Is she a little house dog? Then she's in the house. She hears that word little dogs and she thinks, I can work with that. And so she answers, yes, Lord. She absolutely agrees with him. Yes, Lord. It's not good to take away the bread from the children and throw it to the dogs. For in fact, the little dogs eat from the little crumbs which fall from the table of their masters. And she's just asking a crumb. For Jesus, it would just be a crumb. And in answer, he says, oh, woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you wish. That word, oh, that's, that's, a, that's an expression of emotion. He's overcome with her. And as he designed, he says, oh, woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter at a distance was cured simply the, the moment Jesus says so. So this is a, a striking story because though she pleads after him in great need and insistence, he, his initial response is silence. And then his second response is a rebuff. Now, which really was worse? Was it worse when he didn't say anything? Or was it worse when he said, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? And then a third time, you don't want to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. She goes through a lot on the way to the answer to her prayer. What's going on here? Is that something that ever happens? Does that ever happen to us? Are we strangers to that experience of the apparent silence and distance of God? If we walked with the Lord for any time at all, I think not. So let's look closely together and see what we have here to learn from that, both for our own soul's good and for the good of those we have the opportunity to help. So Roman numeral one, let's begin with some pondering. Let's think about this together biblically. Pondering, silence and distance. Times God seems silent and he seems distant, as when Jesus answered her not a word. 
Well, I'm, obviously this could be a very long series, but I'm just going to slice it into three main headings. A good Puritan preacher would give you 47 headings with 47 subpoints, but we'll do three. And the first is a particular kind of this situation. Sometimes it's us and it's not good. That's letter A. Sometimes the issue is us. Sometimes it's us and it's not good. And each time we'll look at it from the same three angles. What it involves, what it means, and how to respond. So what does it involve when God seems silent and distant and the problem is us? The principle here is found in Psalm 66, 18, uh, where the psalmist says, If I see wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If he is regarding and calculating a wicked end, if he's looking on sin and accepting it, if he's aware of wickedness and not repenting of it in his heart, then the Lord will not hear, he says. He's not praying to to, uh, repent or for help and struggle against the sin. He's entertaining the sin. He's holding the sin. He's he's walking in this sin. He says the Lord will not hear. And Habakkuk 1.13, the prophet says, Your eyes are too pure to see evil, and you cannot look on trouble. So that's the situation we're talking about, a time when God may seem distant and silent because we ourselves are walking in some sin. We are clinging to some sin, involved in some sin. The problem is stated in Isaiah 59.2, where God says to the people of Israel through the prophet, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. Again and again through the prophecy of Isaiah, God calls out to Israel, and he calls them to repent and to come back to him. He points out their sin. He calls out and warns them of the consequences of their iniquities. And here he's saying, although they continue to go on with the gestures of religion and the outward trappings of a religious lifestyle, I can't tell you how many times I've seen that, of Christians who are clinging to some sins but still going through the outward motions of religiousness, and they are, but uh, they're being told that, no, their sins are a problem. When God looks to them and they try to approach him in prayer, there's that sin looking God in the face, and that makes a separation in their experience of fellowship with him. Jesus says something similar in John 15:10. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now he's talking about abiding. He's talking about daily experience. He's not talking about how to earn the love of God. They have the love of God. He's talking about remaining in their experience of the love of God, walking in fellowship with God. And the way to do that is to walk in in line with the commandments of God. That just makes sense. If you're walking with somebody, as long as you're going the same direction as that person, you walk with them. But if you break off and head in a different direction... You're not in company anymore, and God's laid out his will for us in his word, and if we deliberately or by neglect turn our eyes from it, walk a different way, uh, the consequence is a loss of fellowship with God, a loss of enjoyment of the love of God. That's why Jude says, build yourselves up and keep yourselves, uh, build yourselves up on your most holy faith, keep yourselves in the love of God. The, The daily experience of that by walking with God, sin breaks that, sin parts us from that. That's the problem that we are experiencing. Sin makes it a break in our enjoyment of God's fellowship. So number two, what it means. 
Well, let me just be very plain and very blunt. If you're, if you're unsaved, if you, you have not converted and repented and believed in the Lord Jesus, then when you come to God to ask for something, all he sees is your sin. You have not parted with your sin. You are still under the lordship of your sin. You still identify yourself with your sin. Until the, the time you deny yourself and repent and trust in the Lord Jesus as your Savior and your God, well, then you're trying to be your Savior and your God. When you come to God, He sees your sin. You've not been parted for it. It's not been atoned for. It's not been paid for for you, and that's the issue. So we don't come to... In fact, Scripture says plainly, uh, Proverbs 28, 9, that when a man turns away his ear from hearing the law, his prayer is an abomination to God. So that's the problem for an unbeliever, but what about for a believer? Well... If I get into sin as a believer, then my problem with God is not that now God's wrath is on me. My problem with God is not the justice of God. I want you to understand that. Because God's wrath, in my case, has fallen on all my sin in the person of Jesus Christ. And He has atoned for my iniquity. He's atoned for my... He's satisfied the justice of God. So while my sin is a problem, and it causes a disruption of my fellowship with God... It's not a problem to the justice of God. He doesn't need to rebalance the scales of justice. Do you understand? That's what Romans 8, 1 says. What does it say? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not except when you sin. Well, we do, sadly. Chapter 7, I just finished talking about that. But we don't come into condemnation because... God's justice has been satisfied for once and for all. So what does happen when a believer comes into sin? Well, it, as I say, it disrupts his fellowship. We incur his fatherly displeasure. And he disciplines us. But listen to me very closely. When God disciplines a child of his, it's not to satisfy justice. That's been done in Christ. It's not to pay him back for his sin. Christ has paid for his sins. Are you with me so far? Then why does God discipline his children. Hebrews 12 says plainly, for our good that we might partake of his holiness. That's why he does it. And he does do it. And so, as long as we're clinging to that sin, though, God wants, that, that is an issue. And God wants us to see it and depart with it. And he may uh, work in our life in, in certain ways that the distractions that we want to, to, to cover up our sin, he doesn't allow us we're forced to come back again and again and again to what that issue is between us and God until we deal with that issue that is between us and God. How? I'll talk about that in just a second. But this is God's aim in these cases, in the case of a Christian. Uh, he wants us to see our sin. He wants us to face it. He wants to see its bitterness and uh, its harmfulness, and he wants us to turn from it in repentance and begin walking with him again. Why? For his glory, always for our good and for our holiness. So how do we respond when it's the case that God is distant from us, we're distant from God because we're clinging to sin unrepentantly? Well, <laughs> you kind of could figure it out from the way I phrased it, couldn't you? If the problem is that we are clinging to sin unrepentantly, then I suppose we should... I'm with you there. So Scripture, more importantly. Proverbs 28, 13 how to respond, Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his transgressions, oh boy, what's that? Takes us back to the garden. 
hiding behind the fig leaves and the bushes. And what are our fig leaves and bushes? Rationalization, but it's his fault, but it's her fault, but my mom dropped me on my head, but, you know, uh, institutional this and that and the other thing. Everything but taking responsibility for my sin well. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will receive compassion. So we name it, we admit it, we apologize to God for it, and we repent of it. If we need to make restitution for it or do something, we do that. Because we want that thing gone and we want that thing dead. Romans 8 says that we must mortify the deeds of the body and we will live. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Go with me to Psalm 32 to, to sort of see this in action, will you? Psalm 32, not too hard to find, right in the middle of your Bible. Don't know what to tell you if you're using your phone. Right in the middle of your screen, I guess, I don't know. But Psalm 32, it's a Psalm of David, written after his horrendous sin with Bathsheba. And we see here something that we don't see in the historical record. We don't see what's going on inside of David. Uh, in, outside of David, the, the history show us business as usual. In fact, he goes and he marries the woman he's committed adultery with. Everything's fine. Everything's dandy until that point. But here's what's going on inside of him. How blessed, he starts with his conclusion... How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, this is what he's walking in now, but it's not what he was walking in. Verse 3 takes us there. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer, So what happened? I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not cover up. I said I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So there it is. He experienced distance from God. He experienced the discipline of God. Why? Because he had sin that he was not repenting of. He was covering up and he did not find mercy. But then he acknowledged it. He confessed it. He owned it as his sin. In Psalm 51, he says, Against you and you only have I sinned, because in all sins God is the ultimate injured party. And then he knows the experience of God's forgiveness and God's pardon. So that is how to respond if we are in that first situation where we are experiencing distance and silence because of our sin. Secondly, letter B, sometimes it's God and it's good. Sometimes it's us and it's bad, but sometimes it's God and it's good. How can it possibly good for God, be good for God to seem distant and silent? How can it possibly? Well, let's talk first uh, of all what, we're going, what it involves. It involves a situation where I go to God in prayer and I make a good request, a request that is biblical, that should be pleasing to God, and the answer to this request is, is long in coming. 
It is so long that it definitely appears the clock is about to run out and all the sand is going to go out of the top part of the hourglass. It goes on and on and on. Let's look together. If you're still in the Psalms, it'll be easy. Psalm 40, and we'll look at verses 1 and 2. Now, the LSB translates this, I hoped earnestly for Yahweh. There are two words that are very similar, and they're sometimes translated hope or wait. And some English Bibles use both those words for both those verbs very inconsistently. The LSB tries to be consistent in rendering one the one way, one the other way. Here's the one they've chosen to render by hope. But obviously, hope involves waiting. That's what hoping is. I don't hope to get the chance to preach to you today. Ta-da! Here I am. So it's not an object of hope to me. I do hope that I preach faithfully and well. (laughs) There's time to tell for that, but I'm giving it all I've got with God's grace. I hoped earnestly for Yahweh. You could also translate that, the Hebrew uh, uh, syntax, as I hoped and hoped. Or I waited and waited for Yahweh. This is something that went on and on. How can I tell that? He says, and he inclined his ear to me. Now, now read this. He inclined his ear to me and heard my cry for help. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction and out of the miry clay. And he set my feet upon a high rock. He established my steps, put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. You say, I think you got the wrong verse. Because what does this have to do with waiting and waiting in long times of silence? Well, look again. He heard my cry for help and did what? He brought me up out of the pit of destruction. So where was I? (laughs) I was in the pit of destruction and hoping and hoping and waiting and waiting and crying to God. It had gotten to a very bad place. You'd say, well, it would have been nice if God had just kept him out of the pit of destruction. But that was not God's providential plan. He was in it and he was in it for a good while. Look on. Out of the miry clay... And he set my feet upon a high rock. He established my steps. What's the picture there? He's sinking lower and lower and lower and lower in this miry clay. He's in a pit with a muddy, murky, quicksand-like bottom. And he's sinking more and more. All the while he's praying. All the while he's waiting. All the while he's hoping and crying out. But this goes on and on and on until God finally answers. So indeed, he's praying for a good end. And his prayer is not being answered. So, uh, let's talk about what it means. What is God doing during this time? Look at 2 Corinthians 12 with me. And we'll focus on verses 7 through 10. Do turn there though, please. 2 Corinthians 12. Now, now, you've turned there. Just hang on for a second. We'll look at it more closely in a moment. But let me first explain the principle here. What's going on here in this situation is God has a purpose for his child that is a kind and good purpose. And let me just step aside to say all of God's purposes for his children are kind and good. This is something that you may still need to learn. It's something I continue to learn and have to remind myself of. But remember... God has completely settled his entire case against us in Jesus Christ. He will never again be angry. He never again will look at us with with hatred and with judgment. He only looks at us in love. And so, as Romans 8 spells out at length, this is why all things work together for good, including tribulation, distress, peril, nakedness, and the sword. 
We're more than conquerors, Paul says. Why? Because it's in Christ Jesus that we have this. And God gives this to us. All His purposes for us are good and kind. And so, when we're going through an experience of long waiting and long, apparently, unanswered praying, God has a good and kind purpose in it. He can't not. He's our Father. He loves us. He's all wise. He can't do it wrong. We make mistakes as parents. On our best intention days, we make mistakes as parents. Sometimes we think things out very carefully, and then later we look back and realize it was a bad decision. But God never does that. He's incapable of making a mistake as our Father. He is, what is He doing? What, what's, what is the game plan for all of us? He's molding us into the likeness of Christ. And so this experience is how He's molding us into the likeness of Christ. And how did Christ learn obedience according to Hebrews? He learned learned obedience by the things He suffered. Hebrews 5, by the things He suffered. He's our elder brother. How are we going to learn obedience? But if all prayers were answered like this, where would there be suffering? This is one of the ways in which God forms the character of Christ in us. So, now, 2 Corinthians 12 Paul is talking in the context about the Corinthians have been led astray by these celebrity apostles, these super apostles, and Paul is showing them that he's the real deal while they're not. And he want, he's going to talk about a revelation he had in chapter 12 at the beginning. He actually was taken into the third heaven. He just mentions that and says, but I can't tell you anything about it. <laughs> and then he goes on to say in verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now let's expound this a little bit. Uh, This is for the uh, purpose of keeping him from exalting himself. Would exalting himself be a good thing or a bad thing for his Christian growth? It would be a bad thing. So the opposite of that is humility. So the purpose of this is humility. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. It's a Christian grace. But he says it was a thorn in the flesh. Now, is a thorn in the flesh a pleasant experience or an unpleasant experience? Unpleasant experience. Is it painful or delightful? Painful. Do you want it in or do you want it out? You want it out. So this is something that of of itself has nothing good about it. It just hurts. What's more, he goes on to say, it's a messenger of Satan, literally an angel of Satan. It's a messenger of Satan. What's more, to torment me. So it was something, we have no idea what. We have no idea. You've heard speculations. They're all speculations. We have no idea. What do you think it is, Pastor? I have no idea. And by the way, that's the point of this. So that we don't look at it and say, well, at least I don't have that. You know, We may have a thorn. It may be something totally different. But... Its purpose is to torment him. So it is painful. It's supposed to be painful. It's there to be painful. But then he says again, why? To keep me from exalting myself. That's why it was given. Now, was given, this is called a divine passive. Was given by whom? Was given by God. It was given by God. God brought this into it. If Satan doesn't want to keep him from exalting himself. Satan would be delighted if he exalted himself. That would be great. He'd be no use to God whatsoever. 
<laughs> no, it's God who allowed this into his life. And so, reasonably enough, verse 8, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord that it might leave me. Oh, wait, I skipped some words, didn't I? What did I skip? I pleaded with the Lord three times. Take this away from me. Nothing. Take this away from me. Nothing. Please, for Jesus' sake and for your glory, take this away from me. I would serve you better. I would be a better testimony. I would be more effective if you would take this away from me. And then he gets an answer. (laughs) And what's the answer? Verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So here, let's look at this more closely. Is he praying for a perfectly permissible good thing? Yes, of course. He's not going to go through eternity with a thorn in his flesh tormenting him. So it's perfectly decent for him to ask for it to be removed. There's no problem with that request. And was his, was his design good? Well, no doubt his design was good. Paul, for me to live is Christ, Paul says. I want Christ to be magnified in his body. Well, to the degree that this thorn is tormenting him, it's distracting him, it's weakening him, it's splitting his attention. He just wants to serve the Lord better and more effectively and in a more carefree way. Is that not a good end? It's not a trick question. Is that not a good end? It's a good end. But notice, God gives him his good end, just not the way he asked for. Was God glorified? Yes, he was. Did Paul reflect the image of Christ better? Yes, he did. How? By God not removing the thorn from his flesh. So you see, God granted him the ends he wanted in his prayer, but not the means by which he wanted them. He didn't get what he was asking for to be done, but he did get what he was asking for to be fully accomplished. And that's the glory of God. So he prayed for God's grace to bless him in his ministry, and God's grace blessed him through him bearing with this thorn whatever it was. And thus the power of Christ dwelt on him. And I would go as far as to say Paul had a rather effective ministry and did glorify the Lord and did know the grace of God by God not answering exactly what he prayed for. Sometimes it's God and it's good. So how do we respond when we might be in a situation like that? Let me take you to a couple of models. Look at Psalm 5 with me. And there are many, many in the Psalms. We'll just look at a couple. Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Yahweh. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. O Yahweh, in the morning you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. So his meditation or his sighing or his moaning, he's early in the morning seeking God with this. He's bringing it before God every morning. And look, he says, I will order my prayer. The idea of the Hebrew verb there is is he arranges it. He works it out. He plans it out. And he comes before God again and again with it. He says, I will order my prayer for you and eagerly watch. 
Now there's the thing, and there's the thing I think, I'll just speak for myself, I know is lacking from my life. I'm, I'm sure it's lacking in many of our lives that we pray, and if somebody were to ask us in a candid moment, do you expect to get the answer to that prayer? We might say, oh, not really, but I know it's right to pray. But we should always expect our prayers to be answered. 100% of the time, if we're praying according to God's Word. It's just that we may not get the specific thing we asked for like Paul did, didn't. We may instead get something better. And that's what God always does to His children. He always gives us exactly what we ask for, or He gives us something better. Is there any question in your mind as to whether if God's idea differs from yours that it's a better idea? Have you worked that, that math out yet? <laughs> I think we have to work that math out again and again and remind ourselves constantly that if I'm asking for A and God thinks B is better, hmm, carry the zero, divide by five, God's right, God's answer is better. But we should eagerly watch for what it is. Eagerly watch for what it is because he will answer. He won't not answer. Was Paul prayer, what Paul's prayer answered? Yes, it was. Just not exactly what he asked for. He got something better. You see? Let's turn to Psalm 123, verses 1 and 2. To you I lift up my eyes, the one enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a servant girl to the hand of, their, of her mistress, so our eyes look to Yahweh our God. Now some take these expressions and they think they're looking for the hand for direction, to tell you what to do, like, like as if you could get some personal idea. But no, it's the hand that supplies the, the servant's needs. And that's how we're looking here, I can tell, by the last clause until he is gracious to us. I'm not looking to him to give me some directions that aren't in his word. I'm looking to him graciously to give me what I need. And what this psalm paints out is doing that until that happens. So as a, as a slave girl or a slave with a good master, a generous master, looks to that hand expectantly, sure that he's going to be given what he needs for his service, so we should look to the hand of God expectantly, persistently, until God gives us what we need, expecting to see him do that, because he will. So there's our models. So what should we do if we're in a situation like this? We should always search Scripture to see what God's will is and what his promises are. We should search our hearts for sin to see if that's the issue. And we should pray and arrange our argument before God. And we should pray again and again, trust, watch, confident of God's blessing, we should walk by faith and not by sight. And God's answer may come in a second, in a month, a year, a century, or a millennium. God's got a lot of time. And that's the, that's the frame he's looking at. We say, I've got 49 seconds. He says, you've got 49 trillion years. His, that's why his rate is not always the same as ours. Sometimes it's very fast. Sometimes not so much. But it's always exactly right. And so like 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we walk by faith, not by sight. We trust God's character, His wisdom, His promises. We lay out our prayer and trust Him to do what's right when it's right. We look for it. So there's the second situation. The third, letter C, 
Sometimes it's a mystery and it's mysterious. <laughs> you say, oh, I, I hoped you would explain the mystery to me. But then it wouldn't be much of a mystery, would it? No, sometimes it's a mystery and it's mysterious. Why is God not hearing? Why is He not moving? Why is He not answering this perfectly good, urgent prayer? Uh, the three word answer is, I don't know. Sometimes it's mysterious, it's a mystery, and it's mysterious. So what does it involve? Very simply put, four words, matters beyond our knowledge. (laughs) That's what it involves, matters beyond our knowledge. You say, inconceivable. I can't imagine that there are things I don't know about. We don't know most things. (laughs) In in God's universe of visible and visible things, we don't know most things. We know just a few things. God knows everything. you, you've made decisions and realized you'd forgotten something, right? God never does that. All of his decisions are with knowing everything. Every second of every atom of everything. So, let's talk about a couple of examples. One of this is, is Job chapters 1 and 2. I, I won't take you there. I trust you know the story. What happens in Job 1 and 2? We're taken into the heavenly courtroom, and we've seen a couple of times where Satan comes before Yahweh, and, and they discuss Job. And just to to run it together, Yahweh allows Satan to do horrible things to Job, to take away from him the things dearest and to strike him personally, not to kill him, but to do horrible things to him. And the rest of the book until the last few chapters is Job and his three friends dealing with all of the misery and all of Job's turmoil over what he's going through and and their brilliant solutions about why he must be going through it. All of them... uh, fundamentally wrong, that he was being punished for a specific sin, wrong. And Job wanders around too, searching for saying some things that are true and some things that are not. He ends up having to repent when he sees God. But, but what I want to draw your attention to is during all of this time, do any of those four players plus Elihu know anything about the heavenly courtroom scene that starts the book? They don't. There's, there's not a hint of it. There's not a whisper that they know what happened. We don't know how the author eventually found out and put it on the book. We don't know. It's kind of a mystery too. But that's not the big mystery. The big mystery is they're going through discussing a situation that they fundamentally don't know the one thing that would explain why it happened to Job. So both he and they are having to make sense of it, lacking the biggest piece of the puzzle as far as that specific situation goes. Are you with me? So... Did, did Job have enough to make his way through? Well, well, we'll come back to that, but they were lacking essential information. Let me take you to another. This time, do go with me, please, to Daniel chapter 10, if you can find it um, in a reasonable time. <laughs> uh, it's after Ezekiel. Got Daniel. Go to chapter 10. Fascinating little story. Now, this is after uh, chapter 9, which is a... a marvelous prayer and a revelation of the times to come and the ministry of the Messiah. And so after this, we come to chapter 10. In, those, uh, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. The word was true. And uh, uh, verse 2, in those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks, literally three weeks of days. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were fulfilled. What was he doing during all that time he was fasting? 
praying. That's the purpose of fasting, so that he could absolutely set his mind to prayer. As he had just done in chapter 9, so he did again. Now that he has this additional knowledge, he prays and he prays and he prays for a whole week. Well, wait a minute. He, he actually prays for two whole weeks. Well, wait. No, it's actually three weeks of days. Three full weeks that he prays without getting an answer. And then suddenly this man appears to him, turns out to be an angel. And I just want us to focus on what he says to, to Daniel in verse 12. Do not be afraid, Daniel. That's angel speak for try not to die on me. I know I'm scary. Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day you gave your heart to understand this and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. He was sent out the second Daniel started praying. But, verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia was standing against me for 21 days. That's an angelic being. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Now I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I've come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the last days. So why did he get no answer for 21 days? Because this angel was involved in a spiritual conflict with a demonic power. And he ended up having to get Michael's help in order to get himself free and come answer Daniel's prayer. Now, did Daniel have any idea that was going on? <laughs> Would it have ever, I dare say, would it ever have occurred to him? Maybe I'm not getting an answer because they're an angel on the way to me fighting a fight off in Persia. Well, I don't think that ever would have occurred to him. Now, would it have changed Job's and Daniel's thinking to know what had happened without their knowledge in the heavenly spiritual realm? Would that have changed their thinking? Would that have made a difference? Well, yeah, sure. They would have known something about the situation that they didn't know anything about. That would have given them information they just absolutely were lacking. And that's my point. Let's talk about what it means. Did Job know this? Did Daniel know this? No. Could they have known it in any way? Absolutely not. Apart from Revelation? No. There was no microscope. There was no telescope. There was no oscilloscope. There were no scopes that could have shown them what was going on and affecting their lives. It was absolutely out of their realm of knowledge. Now, what's my point? Are you saying, oh, pastor's telling me that when uh, God's slow in answering my prayer, there's an angel brawl going on. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. That may never affect us. We're, we're small peas. We, that may never affect us, or it may affect us a lot. That's the point. I don't know. But the point is that that's just one of a category of a quintillion things that could affect the answer to my prayer. Do you, do you see where I'm going? God is aware of absolutely... Listen, He's not only aware of absolutely everything that is going on, He's aware of how absolutely everything that's going on affects everything else that's going on, and He's aware of the consequences of all these effects for the infinite ages to come. So if you want to buy a bagel, you just have to see if you have enough money for the bagel in your wallet. When God hears a prayer, he hears it in the context of everything that is happening and is going to happen. So is it possible that my prayer might be affected by something I don't know anything about? Possible? <laughs> it's probable, right? Because let's return to the fundamental fact. We don't know most things, but God knows everything. And if we're praying, then isn't that an act supposed to be an act of trust and dependence and submission? 
Well, bound up in that trust and dependence in submission, should there not be an acknowledgement of God's much greater scale of knowledge and the way he approaches our prayers? That's the point. And so, as an aside, don't, don't you see the utter arrogance ever of arguing with God or faulting God, saying, here's a situation that I know God should have done. He didn't do it. He failed me utter arrogance of that. Have you ever thought about that? And this is the the regular thing of atheists. You know, they point to their little stories. I asked for this. God didn't answer, so I know there's no God. Because you know everything, right? Because you know everything about what God should do. You're an expert on how a good good God should behave. You know what? You don't know the fraction of a nothing about God. And yet we, we, well, but this all started in Genesis 3. They knew better than God whether they should eat that fruit or not. (laughs) This is just that. I mean, we've just been doing versions of that ever since Genesis 3, right? Every sin is just a version of that, isn't it? And every time we challenge God and fault God and argue with God, it's just a version of that. I have better judgment, a better grasp of the situation, better understanding. I even have a better character than God does. If If he was a good God, read in the line, if I were God... This is what would have happened. But no, the fact is, there are mysterious things about which we know nothing. So let's talk about how to respond. Obviously, how to respond involves knowing that and thinking about that. How did Daniel respond? Well, we have no no hint that he ever wavered. Job did waver. Job did say things of which he needed to repent. But his heart commitment never did. Job 13, 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. He was always sure that in the final analysis, God would do right. He was convicted of the rightness of God. And as soon as he saw God, he repented of what he'd said, that he knew to be folly and submitted to God. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. So what we do is we look at those examples, and there are many others, and we trust the character and the word of God. We trust the character and the Word of God. And so somebody says, ah, I I see you're you're saying that people should just go on in blind faith. Is that what I'm saying? I, I absolutely would insist and argue to anybody, faith, biblical faith, is the opposite of blind. It's unbelief that's blind. Unbelief says I'm smarter than God. That's blind It's blind to his excellence and it's blind to my fallenness and my wickedness. It's unbelief that's blind. But what is is this faith I'm talking about that trusts the character and word of God? It's going by everything we know about God. And we've got a whole book of his character, his promises, his deeds, and they give us every reason to believe that he will always do the right thing. Take, take a silly example. Suppose, and I've done this obviously, in, particularly in my kids' younger years, I tell them I, I want to take them someplace and it's going to be fun. I want to surprise them. And they say, Well, where are we going? And I say, Oh, just trust me. It's going to be fun. Well, if they trust me, is it blind faith? Would really the smarter thing for them to be, would the smarter response for them to have been to say to me, oh no, until you absolutely completely draw out to my satisfaction what your plans are and show me that you've provided for my needs and my wants in all of them, I cannot possibly enter that car with you. Would you say that was a smart child or would you say that was a miserable brat? 
miserable brat. My, my children never did that because they, because they knew if I said it was going to be fun, it was going to be fun. Well, could I be wrong? Could I screw up? Could I make a mistake, a miscalculation? Well, sadly, yes. Can God? No. And yet they trust me blindly? No, because they knew me. They'd experienced me. They knew my character. They knew how much I loved them. And I knew how to give them good times. Almost always. <laughs> so when we trust God, it's not blind. It's based on what we know of Him. And we know enough to trust Him. Isaiah 50, verse 10. Who is among you that fears Yahweh, that listens to the voice of His servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Ah, oh, there's that situation. What should he do? Let him trust in the name of Yahweh and rely, lean on his God. Isaiah 50, 10. That's what we should do. Uh, one more. Look at Psalm 13 with me. Psalm 13. Spurgeon said, we call this the how long psalm, but we're tempted to call it the howling psalm because four times he howls, how long, how long? Four times in, in the opening verses, how long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? Now, he's not literally saying he's forgotten. He's saying God doesn't seem to be paying any attention to him, doing anything in his life, and it seems like forever. Verse, uh, next phrase, how long will you hide your face from me? Well, now there's silence and distance, isn't it? Just what we're talking about. How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? I'm all alone. All I've got to talk to is me. The only wisdom I get is from me. How miserable is that? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Look and answer me, O Yahweh, my God. Give light to my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy rejoice. In none of this is there given any explanation as to why it went on so long. It's a mystery. Why did God delay? Don't know. Why did he allow him to come into such straits? No idea. Ah, but look at verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to Yahweh because he has dealt bountifully with me. He trusted God. He had God's promises. He knew God would ultimately save him. Didn't know why, didn't know how long, but he knew how it would end. And that's the counsel to us. Three specifics. So now after having pondered this, Roman, number two, Roman numeral two, let's take to observing the woman's model, and then we'll go through this fairly briskly. First, she is in earnest. She is in earnest. And look, a Canaanite woman came out and kept crying out, kept shouting and hollering, show me mercy, Lord, son of David. And the disciples say she's crying out from behind us. She keeps hollering and yelling behind us. Everyone can hear her. She's not at all quiet and demure about this. The disciples wish they didn't have to hear her, but they all hear her. Everybody knew she was in need. And she keeps this up, first of all, without any encouragement. And then she keeps it up despite discouragement. And then she keeps it up despite further discouragement. So would you say she is in earnest? I would say she was in earnest. There was no doubt about it. Uh, and so where isn't her attention fixed during all this? It isn't fixed on herself. And 
her ideas of how she should be treated, how she deserves to be treated, or how people will see her or look at her. She's she, no clue that she, I mean, no indication that she's thinking about herself at all. What are the two things she is thinking about that we know for certain? Her daughter and Jesus. She's thinking about her daughter and the depth of her need and Jesus and the greatness of his ability and the goodness of his character. We, we saw last week that comes out. These are the two things that, that she has her mind on, not herself, but her daughter and Jesus. So it is in earnest. Secondly, it is sincere. She says, Lord, Son of David. She calls him Lord three times. Well, there's people who will call Jesus Lord who won't go to heaven. Matthew 7, 21 to 23, many people will say, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of my Father, Jesus says. She calls him Lord three times, but she's sincere. She's sincere. She believes he's the son of David, the Jewish Messiah. That comes out in her, her next words. And she submits to him as Lord, as we see, number three, she is submissive. She is submissive. First, he says, I was not sent except to, unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She does not argue with that, does she? She called him son of David. She knew he was the Jewish Messiah, not the Canaanite Messiah, not the Syrophoenician or Greek Messiah. She's the, he's the Jewish Messiah. So then she just begs for help. And he says, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And as I've pointed out, she catches on that little dog. She says, I can work with that. I can work with that. My little house dog, it's true. You don't take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. That's not what they eat, but they do eat. They eat the crumbs, the little crumbs that fall off the master's table. So in all this, what do you see? She's not offended. What does that contrast with offended? We just see that. Verse 12, do you remember when Jesus responded to the Pharisees and scribes and threw their accusation right back in their face and he called them blind guides? What did the apostles say? <gasps> Don't you know they were offended at this word? They were offended at Jesus telling the truth about them. But she wasn't offended. She took it. She took it. It's true, she wasn't one of the children. It's true, she was a little house dog. She wasn't one of the nation of Israel. She took that. She didn't raise herself up and defend herself and defend her dignity. Imagine if the Pharisees had responded similarly. Just, just imagine if when Jesus threw that back at them, they'd actually listened to him and said, I see that. We are hypocrites. We have buried the word of God under our tradition. How did we do that over all these years? And, and I see it now. My worship is just lip worship. It's not from my heart. I'm a hypocrite. Lord, help me. What if they'd responded that way? Oh, but no. No, no. They drew themselves up to their full height. What if when he'd said blind guides, they'd said, oh, Lord, you're right. We see it now. We're blind guides, but you give sight to the blind. Would you give sight to us? What if they'd responded that way? Have a different story. They'd have a very different story. But they didn't. They didn't. She did. She submitted to what Jesus said about her, took it to heart, and found in it something she could work with. Fourthly, she was tenacious. T-N-A-C-I-O-U-S. Tenacious. Which is to say, she hung on and wouldn't let go. 
She catches on his very words and takes his words. It's his word, kinaria, little dog. She seizes on his word and takes his word back to him and says, this kinarion is just asking for a little crumb. So she says, in effect, I accept that. I'm just asking for a crumb. Give your little dog a little crumb. She won't let go of him until he blesses her. Well, now, that's, does that sound familiar? She's not going to let go of him until he blesses her. Is there another story that's something like that in the Bible? I think there is. Turn back to Genesis 32 with me. And uh, irony alert. Heavy irony alert. So who was Jesus only sent to? What did he say? I'm only sent to the lost sheep of the... Of, of Israel, of the house of Israel. Just the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she's not one of them. Okay, so uh, Genesis 32, here's Jacob. And what's his name at this time? It's just Jacob. That's his only name. He's Jacob. He's not Israel. He's Jacob. And he meets a man, verse 24, and wrestles with this man all night long. And he doesn't, there's no prevailing, and so the man dislocates his thigh and he says, let me go, the man says, the man who we know is the angel of Yahweh. And what does Jacob say? I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the angel says, what's your name? And he says, Jacob. And he says, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Who is, who's more like Israel? The Pharisees and the scribes or this Canaanite woman? Canaanite woman. No, she's not of the, of the house of Israel. But like Jacob, who in this incident was renamed Israel, she's not going to let go of him until he blesses her. That's tenacious faith. So, in sum, let her be, in sum, what two things do we see that we take away from, with her, from her? First, she has great faith. And you see in her great faith that it is other-centered, it's centered on Jesus' greatness and her daughter's need. It's other-centered, it's tenacious, it's submissive. We talked about all these things in our little mini-series mini on faith. Faith by its nature submits to the Word of God, and so she does, and hangs on. And faith also is indomitable. It is indomitable. It can't be overcome. It, she can't be talked out of it, or shamed out of it, or silenced out of it. James 1.6, But he must ask in faith, doubting nothing, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Don't let that man think he'll receive anything from the Lord. James 1.6, Was she tossed and turned? Absolutely not. She hung on. She, she had indomitable faith. She has great faith. Such great faith that Jesus marveled. And secondly, she is a great model. She is a great model. From her example, we will learn to search, to seek, and to stand. To search to make sure we know the promises and the character and the Word of God so we can seek Him in the way that pleases Him and not like hypocrites. We will seek the face of God earnestly and devotedly and let nothing dissuade us from it. And we will stand on God's promises and characters and hold on until he blesses us. 
And normally I have a conclusion, but today my conclusion is just to quote Charles Spurgeon because he's just absolutely wonderful on this. So we conclude listening to the great preacher himself, Charles Spurgeon. Speaking on this, he says, he notes, that the Savior did not at once bestow the blessing, even though the woman had great faith in him. He intended to give it, but he waited a while. He answered her not a word. Were not her prayers good? (laughs) Never better in the world. Was not her case needy? Sorrowfully needy. Did she not feel her need sufficiently? Well, she felt it overwhelmingly. Was she not earnest enough? She was intensely so. Had she no faith? She had such a high degree of it that even Jesus wondered and said, O woman, great is thy faith. So, see then, although it is true that faith brings peace, yet it does not always bring it instantaneously. There may be certain reasons for calling for the trial of faith rather than the reward of faith. Many in waiting upon the Lord find immediate delight, but this is not the case with all. A deeper sense of sin may be given to you instead of a sense of pardon. And in such a case, you will have need of patience to bear the heavy blow. Ah, poor heart, though Christ beat and bruise thee, or even slay thee, trust him, trust him. Though he should give thee an angry word, believe in the love of his heart. Do not, I beseech thee, give up seeking or trusting my master, because thou hast not yet obtained the conscious joy which thou longest for. Cast thyself on him and perseveringly depend, even when thou canst not yet rejoicingly hope. Amen. He did not answer her a word until he did. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word and for the life that it brings to us, the hope, the wisdom, the joy. We pray that it will have the effect first on those who don't know Christ, to see their great need of repenting and throwing themselves on his mercy alone, looking to him as Lord, Savior, and God, having new life and pardon. And for those of us here who are weary and who are long in waiting and long in praying for good things that we don't have the answer to yet, help us to learn to do it tenaciously and hopefully, to trust your character and wisdom, to submit to your judgment and to look for your blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.